Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today, I have a few folks with me for this episode. Uh, Today, I am also joined by... Charity Majors, um, Nipsey Tipsy on Twitter. Marissa Gray. And George Miranda, gmiranda23 on Twitter. Excellent. So we have our three guests are with us today from Honeycomb, and we're going to be talking about observability. So we're talking about the state of observability in 2021. One of our earliest episodes, Christine Yen came on right? Talking about observability. And, you know, we thought it would be great to follow up, right? It's been almost two years since that episode. So you also work at Honeycomb. That's where Christine is. And um, you've been working on co-authoring a new book from O'Reilly. Yay! Titled Observability Engineering. And over the past couple of years, you know, observability has really become a popular phrase and something that more people are at least talking about, whether they're you know, thinking about it or making plans to make make uh, inroads in it for their own projects. So today we can dig into some of the hype and maybe uncover more of what it means to practice observability and how that helps you better understand all the production systems that you might have in your ecosystem. So we'll put the earlier episode in the show notes for folks who haven't listened to that one. So you can go back and check on it and uh, make sure I'm missing anything. So uh, we covered the, the bit of the basics then, so we'll go beyond that. So how about we start with how is observability different from monitoring? What's the most basic understanding for folks who are really kind of just coming at this, but know what monitoring is maybe? This is why I think that it is important for us to have a different term because there are a lot of best practices and there's a lot um, that is actually the opposite of monitoring. Monitoring, you've got one process checking on another going, how you doing? How you doing? It's fundamentally about the state of the service. Is my service healthy? Um, it's often used for capacity planning. You know, what percentage of utilization am I? Am I? And it, it really is. It continues to be the gold standard for for understanding infrastructure, right? Like from the perspective of the people who have to, you know, rack servers or from the perspective of people who are, you know, do we have enough Postgres capacity for, you know, our clients to spin some up? That's the gold standard. Observability is much more about the code that you write and ship every day. It's about the code that, you know, is the lifeblood of your systems, if it were. And it's about unknown unknowns, fundamentally. It's about, can you understand, you know, and this is inherited from the old 1960s definition from, you know, control theory, mechanical engineering. Can you understand what your code is doing, any inner state of the system that can get itself into without having to ship new custom code to handle that because that would assume that you could have predicted it in advance, right? Can you understand any novel state just by observing it from the outside, just by asking questions from the outside? And if you accept that definition, which I think increasingly a lot of people do, they accept that there's a difference. They accept that, you know, observability is about, you know, if monitoring is about the what, you know, observability is about the how, then it turns out there's a lot of technical things that proceed from that. You have to support high cardinality. You have to support high dimensionality. As far as we can tell, these are basic fundamental prerequisites to answering any question about your systems. But if anyone wants to prove us wrong and and show that there are additional ways, we are all ears. (laughs) Fundamentally, 
it's about the diamond nodes. Yeah, definitely. So we got the difference between like poking the things that we kind of already know were there yeah. and like digging into the things that we don't know that we didn't know. Tell me about your entire existence from start to finish. Yeah. It's very existential. It's a very <laughs> philosophical question there. So there's a lot of, um, you know, some misconceptions, a lot of, you know, maybe some lost in translation kinds of things about observability. What's a, a myth or a common misconception about observability that you'd like to debunk? The myth that I want to bust is that observability is not about three pillars or even four pillars. I think that is the worst possible way to think about observability. So the three pillars definition, right? Logs, traces, metrics, sometimes includes events. That definition is just focused on data types, right? And it's particularly misguided because those three things, those four things are all basically the same data, right? An event is a record of a discrete amount of work that happened somewhere inside your system, right? which is essentially the same as a log entry. And so assuming that your log data is structured and includes duration, then those two things are exactly the same. And traces, traces are just more of that data, right? Like add in a trace ID and a parent ID and a span ID, and you can connect all of those events together and like, voila, we just created a trace, right? So a trace is just a series of interrelated events. And then metrics, metrics can be calculated by adding up all the logs that occurred over a specific period of time. Right? You want to know how many concurrent threads were running from 8.06 a.m. to 8.07 a.m.? Great. Take all the events within that time span and duration and sum them up, and there's your metric value. Right? And so as an infrastructure engineer, that was the eye-opening part for me, that like, oh, this is actually all the same data, and yet we treat it so differently. And that separation is what has kept us from seeing that it's all just one system that we care about debugging and understanding. But when we treat that data really differently and we break it up into separate tools, into separate views, we lose this cohesive context about like the thing that we actually care about. And so to Charity's point, right, when something is wrong and in, in, inside of your application system and you don't know what it is, you need to slice and dice that data and analyze it in whatever way you need to uncover hidden sources of anomalies. And that's the breakthrough. Right, realizing that after decades of using separate tools to look at, you know, discrete parts of our stack, that it doesn't have to be that way anymore. Right, that we have a better holistic available approach today, and so that three pillars definition, right, it completely undermines that insight. It reinforces those traditional views. It kind of confuses the how rather than 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 the why. Right, like the why is we want engineers to be able to more efficiently run these large and sprawling complex systems. And that the older techniques of trying to enumerate every possible failure case, they just don't work anymore. That these techniques of, you know, oh, more data will just solve our problem. Right? Like, no, instead of adding more data, we need to think about being able to better look at and examine and interrogate the data that you already have. Another interesting way to look at this for, from the perspective of an infrastructure engineer is that it became necessary for us to develop a new, you know, new way of doing things when microservices came about. Because before that, you had the app, the web, the database, right? And you can pretty much predict 80% of the ways the system's ever going to fail and make dashboards for, from them and go home, right? Well, and all the complexity was inside the app. So if all else failed, you could just attach a DDB and step through it, right? Well, you can't do that anymore because you've blown up the monolith. And now your request goes, 
hop, 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 hop. And when we started doing this, you know, five, six years ago, there was no way of carrying that context, you know? So part of what observability is, is instrumenting your code in such a way that you gather up that context and you kind of ship it along with the request as it goes all the way through your services. Yeah, it's super interesting. Like it, it coincides, like there's that codependent evolution of the the way the code has changed and in the way that tools and debugging and all of those other things have to change downstream of that. So like the change in debugging from intuition and like you say, attaching your debugger to the monolith versus going through more traditional dashboards and all those kinds of things. Like what what kind of evolution do you find for engineers who are starting to think about, you know, you have this distributed system, you have these observability tools now, What's your next step with those things? How do you get into that next evolution? It's kind of this interesting question of, is this a greenfield or brownfield situation? Because I think that those two paths are very different. For the greenfield case, I think it's really important to start implementing the right uh, primitives, to start off with a system like OpenTelemetry that handles all of your trace propagation so you can just add key value pairs anywhere in your system, and it'll get automatically added to trace bands. But maybe you're in a world where you can't start with your instrumentation from scratch. Maybe you're retrofitting an existing system. And I think for that, our answer is you probably already have log lines. You probably already have application metrics. How can you bring those things together? How can you add more structure? So it's not something that you know, you're going through with a full text search tool, but instead where you're able to pick out all the fields and you're emitting one log line per request and reporting the request ID, right? Like those are kind of some of the steps that make your data more queryable and more efficient. So kind of thinking about what is what is this data? What can I keep? What should I not be keeping? Yeah, interesting. So for a lot of folks, it might be actually changing the way they're doing their logs and putting those things together, maybe adopting some new practices and style guides and things like that they had. Ideally, Right. Ideally, everyone would have, you know, a UUID that is persisted all the way through their stack, et cetera. But you could also come a long way just using some of the, the post hoc processors. Like, what's the name of that one that was started by the ex Uh Cribble? Cribble. Yeah. Cribble is, is a tool that you can just like attach to the stream at the, outs- at the outside and they will reconstitute your logs into events for you. There's, you know, plenty of Perl scripts out there doing this right as we speak. <laughs> yeah. I think the important thing is that on the on the visualization side, if your tooling doesn't show people value from that experience of making white events, then people are not going to do it, right? Like it's kind of, you have to offer people a carrot and that carrot is you can understand your system better. You can understand your system faster by being able to examine along these dimensions that you weren't previously able to query for. The hardest problem in distributed systems is always is not, rarely what is the code, it's it's usually where is the code that we need to debug, right? And that's what something like Honeycomb or, or like, you know, any real observability tool does so well is isolating where that is coming from and what the errors have in common, you know? Say you see a spike of errors on your dashboard, you know, with metrics, then you what do you do? Well, you usually kind of go flipping through pages, looking for more dashboards that look exactly like that, looking for the same curve. <laughs> That's not exactly science, right? That's not debugging. That's like visual scanning, right? It's it's pattern matching. Sometimes it works, but usually it, it doesn't, or or it tells you only part of the story, right? Whereas with with honeycomb, you know, you can 
click on that and you'll immediately get like if you're using bubble up right we pre-compute for all dimensions inside and outside the, the bubble that you selected and then we sort them to say oh that thing you care about has these five things in common right maybe this ios version this endpoint this you know these free traces, you know, whatever it is, it'll tell you what exactly is in that error spike. Or as Liz will tell us, you know, you can start with the top level of here's my SLO, here's my SLO violation. And then you click on it and you see exactly what the events that are violating the SLO are doing, which is kind of a game changer, right? We're so used to sitting here, looking at our dashboards and then flipping over to try and visually correlate to our logs, right? And, oh, these seem within five minutes of each other. It's probably the same thing, right? Thumbs up. And then copy pasting an ID over into our tracing tool, you know, and that's just, that's not tied together by anything except, you know, the operator's guesses. And I think the interesting thing there is that a lot of the automation solutions that have reached the market are focusing on the wrong part of the problem. Instead of focusing on empowering people to understand their data better, instead they're taking autonomy and control away from people. Whereas a human being might have context as to which metrics might go together, a machine doesn't necessarily have that context. It can't tell what's a cause and what's an effect. So when you unleash a machine learning system to tell you, you know, hey, tell me when there's any anomalies, that machine learning system will wake you up at all hours of the night and there won't necessarily be a user impact related. And it's just your engineers are being woken up by the system that has turned full Skynet. And I think that that's not OK. I think that instead we should be focusing on empowering users and servicing the most relevant data to them when they ask for it. And the thing that's different with observability is that that empowerment comes from enabling you to debug from first principles, right? So to Charity's point, rather than having this familiarity of dashboards or the patterns that you're looking for, you can objectively look to see what is this application really doing. And the the aha moment that I see with folks and when observability really clicks is that moment when they look and they start seeing discrepancies between what they think their code is supposed to do and how it operates based on a spec or an architectural diagram and what it's really doing in the real world, right? And we call that like the meantime to what the f***. And, and lowering that, right? And just seeing like, oh, this is reality. This is what's really happening. That's the power, right? And that's that's the game changer. For folks just getting started on, on these kinds of things, like you've mentioned a couple of other practices that kind of hang along with this. Is this... Is this something that requires a bit of sophistication or a bit of engineering maturity to embrace? Or are you seeing folks that maybe their last generation game wasn't you know, up to the A class, but are getting into observability and reaping big rewards there? You know, I love that uh, specific example you used because we actually did an interview on Ollicast, uh, the podcast that a number of Honeycomb employees co-host with Nick Herring from CCP Games. And CCP Games runs EVE Online, which is a 20-year-old uh, game, right? And they have been modernizing with Honeycomb. And that's really exciting to hear about and to, and to see. Uh, but, but I think the important thing there is they release client updates to their game at least once per week, sometimes multiple times per week. And this is like with a massive install base across you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of real people's computers. Right. And I think that if they can do it, right, like that, that is a sign that your organization can ship, you know, every week at minimum. And I think that the place where people do struggle is let's suppose that you are excited about observability, but your organization took software to production once every six months. Even if you don't have to write a single line of instrumentation, even if there's a magical button you can turn on to get insights, 
if you're not able to change your code to fix the problems you're seeing and then go back to find another round of problems and fix, right? Like if that feedback loop is not tight, you're not going to see benefits. You're much better served accelerating your delivery process and shifting left and kind of lowering that cycle time before you really start to embrace observability. So I think that's kind of what we perceive as the table stakes is you have to be releasing the production, you know, every three months, every month, right? Like Terry is going to argue and say, you know, one hour robust. But like, you know, I, I think I think that observability only starts becoming practical and observability only starts giving you insights that you can act upon immediately when you're prepared to act on those insights. No, that's an excellent point. Absolutely. Fantastic. So all of this stuff that you've been talking about all these things you've been distilling into into all the knowledge that you have like what are folks going to find of all of this in your in your new book so it's in previews right on safari i i added it to my to my shelf but i haven't started it yet but i'm looking forward to that but what all are we going to what are we going to learn in in the new book about all this stuff i think the way the book is coming together it is step by step unpacking why observability why is this necessary and what are the fundamental building blocks? And how do you start incrementing you know, processes that you've done in the past? And what things do you start doing entirely new? And basically methodically making a case. And I think whenever you introduce a fundamentally new practice and something that is you know, so differentiated from something like monitoring, and we've been doing it in a particular way for decades, the burden of proof is on you to show that this is indeed a better way, right? And to methodically make that argument in more than a blog post or a Twitter thread or, or even this podcast, right? And so I think the, the length of the book is actually sufficient to do that, you know, in kind of like a start to finish sort of way. Will it serve as like a, a workbook for folks that are looking to get started? Is it more theory? It's a mix of both, right? I think there's, there's a lot of introductory, you know, why, and then there's a really lots of like meat in the middle of how and specific code examples and showing differences in, for example, SLO data types and why you would use observability data. I think it's not just technical though, right? Like we're showing you not just how to do the technical parts, we're showing you how to do the cultural parts. And I think the cultural parts are the most important bits because while we do kind of thread this deep dive of, for instance, how you would build a data store, the argument is you shouldn't have to, right? But if you really want to understand how does this work, how is this not snake oil, right? Like we unpack it all. Our goal is to help you understand how we came to the conclusions that we did as to why this is the best way to solve this problem. And to Liz's point, also to encapsulate what are the capabilities that enable observability and, and what does that mean, right? And and how is it more than just, uh, it, you know, it's not a synonym for monitoring. It's not a synonym for telemetry. It is that that ability to understand your system in new ways, right? But what does that mean? It means there are a lot of different facets to that. And so that's that's what we try to cover. Excellent. Sounds great. Like, yeah. So we'll put a link in the in the show notes for folks who are interested in getting a, an early look at that. And so like looking into the future, none of us know what's coming next, whatever the, the next uh, exciting thing might be. There's certainly a, a bit of groundswell around things like serverless that seem like they would play into this very well. Other uh, technologies and other movement. What do you feel is next for observability? What are the next pieces of new horizon or new ground that could be cut for, for observability out there? I think the main thing that we need to see first is we need to see this convergence around open telemetry and open standards that mm -hmm. people have been using so many different si disparate systems, different telemetry protocols. And once we all converge on one way of propagating context across potentially many different signals, including metrics, including traces, 
right? Like I think that that's going to help a lot. So the good news is open telemetry tracing went GA recently and open telemetry metrics is going to follow really soon. But I think that we need to see that kind of, you know, 80 to 100% adoption rather than the kind of 20% to 60% adoption that you would see with our current CNCF, with our CNCF incubated status. Yeah, I I, I do think that it plays a role. And I also don't think, like, (laughs) observability is not synonymous with open telemetry. You can use open telemetry to accomplish monitoring. Observability, you could also use open telemetry to accomplish monitoring stuff. It's pretty agnostic there, and which is part of its strength, right? Where open telemetry helps is in reducing the barrier for for users to, you know, try out different services and and, and backends like that. So it's helpful there, but it's 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 not really a necessary part of observability. I just don't want people who start using OTEL to go, cool, now I have observability because it's pretty distinct. Yeah. I think that there's next-gen stuff. Um, a lot of it has to do with lowering the barrier to entry for users, making it so that, you know, it's their native language that they that they pick up so they don't have to unlearn all of the old op stuff and then learn the new stuff. Like, it's so much more intuitive and easy for new grads to just start out with something like Honeycomb than it is to for old people like us who have been like, okay, you know, I have to unlearn like 20 years of ganglia here before I can start to comprehend this. <laughs> there's a whole wave out there of production first tool set that these startups have started in the last five years. It's really exciting to me that the center of gravity is really shifting to tooling for production, understanding production instead of like, you know, like us and Gremlin and, you know, LaunchDarkly. Um, although these companies are kind of coming at, at age. The other one that I wanted to mention there is like Sentry. I'm really excited that Sentry is introducing front-end devs for the first time to this idea of distributed tracing. Like, oh my God, yes. Yeah, so so much of that stuff is is matured, and like you say, that I, I love the idea, like the production first thought model, like thinking about software as something that you're going to put in front of a user, and not something you're just deploying to a package in an artifact repository and just sits there. Treating infrastructure engineers like real people is kind of a novel thing for a for yes. <laughs> and and to Charity's point about you know new college grads and sort of under, like new ways of understanding your system. I think when you look at software development, there is a true and tried pattern for understanding discrepancies between what your code is supposed to do and what it does versus the test, right? But then as we approach production, it just becomes the wild, wild west. And like, who knows what's going to happen in that chaos, right? And it doesn't have to be that way, right? And I think adopting an observability first mindset is about realizing that, oh, there are actually solid ways to track that and see that and analyze it and figure out why is this different when billions of people are using it across thousands of different devices and different geos in different ways versus like a sterile set of lab tests. And and that transition is, I, I think that is what we want to see proliferate and that that's where observability yeah, is going. Exactly. Like TDD is the most successful software paradigm of my lifetime. And, and like, I feel like, yes, and, you know, observability driven development, you know, will incorporate both the tests, but also with the understanding that you don't know shit until it's run in production. You know, as Liz was saying earlier, you know, shrinking that time, that interval between when you write the code and when the code is live so that it's, you know, predictable and swift so that you can be developing, you know, kind of in a constant conversation with your code is actually a really important part of observability because, you know, if you're, you're instrumenting your code and, you know, you're like, great, future me is going to want to know these things, but then it ships in a month. <laughs> you're not going to remember. You don't know. No idea what's going on. Right. Like, and part of the the genius and, and magic of 
writing software with, you know, a very tight feedback loop is that you get to find most bugs before they make their way to users because, you know, you're instrumenting, you're looking at it, you're instrumenting, you're looking at it, and you're asking yourself, is it doing what I expect it to? And does anything look weird? Right? But I'm really stoked that this next generation of engineers, like the the debate over whether or not to put engineers, software engineers on call or not, seems to be concluded, decided. Yes, we do. If you develop a 24-7 highly available service, you should own your software in production because there's really no other way, right? Like, it's not that we want everyone to be just as miserable as Ops has been. <laughs> but, but we do. Well, you know, <laughs> Mandy, inside voice. <laughs> but rather, this is the only way that we actually make things better so that nobody has to be that miserable. Right now, people are shipping code that they don't understand out of these hairballs of stuff that nobody's ever understood, and they're crossing their fingers and backing away slowly. That's no way to live. And they're making right? the QA department's concerned. Right. They're just like, if this breaks, you know, it'll get kicked Kick back to the back of the hundred, some right? Lower, lower class uh, developer group or something. You know, yeah, it's not cool. I think someone was describing me to me the other day, like how the Oracle da- SQL database is, is is developed, right? And it's just like it's this giant monolith, and people, you know, write all these acceptance tests, and they blow up anyways, and they get kicked back, and they have to look at it in a month when QA kicks it back, and it's like that is no way to live. That is no way. It's to absolutely live. not. And people think that, you know, oh, it's, you know, so great that I don't have to be on call. But the reality is they're paying that cost anyways. There was a study that Facebook did that showed that from the moment you write a bug, you know, you, you write it, you type it out, you backspace, you fix it. Cool. That's the fastest you could ever fix a bug. The longer the interval between when you write the bug and when you discover it, the cost of finding it and fixing it goes up exponentially. And as someone that has been on call for a majority of their career until I made the switch over to vendor life. The, the game changer is uh, realizing that, you know, that, that duct tape and popsicle stick approach to production that we were just describing, we are conditioned to live with that and think that that level of not understanding is normal and that that goes with the turf. And this is just the way that things are. And the moment you realize it doesn't have to be that way and you can actually see what's really happening and understand production. Yeah, exactly. That's the moment when you're like, I, I can am never, never go working back. another job again right? without, without having observability. Totally. Which, which points, you know, as, as we should keep putting out, which points to how compelling it is when it comes to recruiting and retaining good engineers. Once they've gotten a taste of the good life, they're going to ask these questions of all future employers. Absolutely. So for, for new folks that are out there, they're just coming on board with all this stuff. Like, I hate to like try and you know dash their hopes with horror stories, but at the same time, like they're, they're cautionary tales. <laughs> like, like I still find places where I I want to say to the people on time, like get a different job. Like yeah. why are you sitting here with this? So yeah, no, that the golden future looks so much better than what the mid two thousands. And and there's this really unfortunate you know mindset that I think is is really prevalent where people are like. That would be great, but that's not for me. You know, that I don't get nice things. That's just for the Googles and the Facebooks, you know. It's for good engineers, you know, which is such bullshit. <laughs> What's that thing that you say, Charity? The thing about uh, how engineers like rise or fall to the level of their team? Yeah, basically within a couple of months of joining a team, you will your level of productivity will rise or fall to join that of the team. Like you don't get to be a special snowflake who just like leaps over the entire deploy process. 
God, I hope you don't. <laughs> you know, it's this is the easy way to build and develop software. The hard way is the way people are doing it now. If you could develop software the way you're doing it now, you are more than capable of developing it with observability. That sounds fantastic. We are just about out of time. Is there any like one little nugget of wonderful knowledge that you'd like to close with or anything you'd like to remind people or ask them to check out after they're, they're done listening. We to have a, a free tier that never expires. Oh, that sounds fantastic. It's people run production workloads. It's pretty, it's pretty sizable. And you know, none of this like one month bullshit. And here's what I'll say. Uh, the, the nugget that I would go with, I guess, building on that is you know, that that moment that I was talking about when you see the discrepancies between like what's really happening and, and what you thought was happening, that is when people start to get it, right? So if you can use a free solution and start sending in your own application data, that's when it starts to click. Like we can describe it all we want. We can tell you all about yeah. it. But until you yeah, see that and, and realize, oh, like I can really understand for the first time, it, it's not going to click until then. And if, even if you're not willing to send us your production app data, send us your build data on why your build is so slow. We guarantee you, you know, honor, it'll fit in our free here and you will find ways to shave 10 minutes off of every single build. It's you amazing. will find so many bugs that have existed <laughs> for so long and you just never knew. <laughs> but yeah, the thing I wanted to close with is serviceable objectives. Like if you are paging yourself because the CPU goes above 90%, you don't have to live like this. Only page if their customers are actually in pain. Absolutely. Customers first, customer experience first. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes for folks listening. Check that out. Uh, we'll link to, to Honeycomb's sites and the preview of the book and all the other exciting things that are going on. So thank you so much, all three of you, for joining me today. This has been fantastic. Super great to learn all this stuff. And so we're signing off. Uh, this is Mandy Walls, and we are wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pagertothelimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at page it to the limit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>